Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Marcus Rotterdam. I'm Director of Research at Glayhold Bowles LLP, and I'm here with Michael Vallow, a partner at the firm. Today's topic is going to focus on the issue of sustainable construction or green building. We'll take a quick look at what those terms are generally understood to mean. We'll look at the significant role the construction industry plays in climate change. And we'll also briefly look at a number of third-party rating systems, which are the systems that are typically used to assess sustainability. We'll talk a bit about the legislative and policy initiative at the federal, provincial and municipal levels of government here in Canada that deal with sustainable construction. But the main focus of this conversation will be the legal issues that arise from sustainable construction. Now, there has not at this point been a huge amount of law generated in that area, at least not in Canada. But there's some guidance at this point on how to deal with green building in a tendering context, for example. There are a few cases in which green building legislation has been challenged. And finally, there's the question, what happens to a project when a particular rating that the parties anticipated and contracted for is not ultimately achieved. So on that point, we'll focus on the availability and the extent of damages when, for example, you contract for a lead gold certification, but only achieve lead silver. So why don't we get started by talking about what it is we're actually talking about? What is sustainable construction? What is green building? And why is it important? Thanks, Marcus. Your question is an obvious one, but of course, there's no universally recognized definition of green building. Green building isn't just about what we're building, but how we're building it. What we're talking about is building in a way that's cleaner, that minimizes negative impacts on human health and the environment, and creating assets that are cleaner to operate, cleaner to maintain, and ultimately cleaner to dispose of at the end of their operating life. Generally, there's a focus on things like reduced energy and water consumption, material use, waste management, and land use throughout the life cycle of the building. When we talk about green building projects, we're talking about the application of principles of sustainability to all aspects of the construction of buildings, but not just buildings, right? Really, we mean all types of infrastructure. For example, in 2019, the Canadian Highway Bridge Design Code was amended to include provisions related to climate change, sustainability, and resilience. Infrastructure Canada developed a new standard for wastewater treatment plants to increase their resilience and improve reliability of services during extreme weather events. Infrastructure Canada is also currently developing guidance to improve climate resilience of existing roads and to guide cost-effective maintenance and rehabilitation decisions. So we're not just talking about solar panels on houses and collecting rainwater. What we're talking about is anything in the built environment that's designed and built with a view to reducing negative impact on the natural environment. As for why all this is such a big deal, maybe you can walk us through some of the numbers that illustrate the impact of the construction industry on greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Yeah, sure. You and I, Mike, recently looked at those numbers for a paper we wrote, and they're pretty stark, both internationally and domestically here in Canada. There's a 2019 global status report for buildings and construction that's prepared by the IEA, the International Energy Agency, which is coordinated by the United Nations Environment Program. 
And that report found that the construction industry accounted for 36% of final energy use and 39% of energy and process related carbon dioxide emissions in 2018. And roughly a third of that resulted from manufacturing building materials and products such as steel, cement and glass. Now in Canada, the Ministry of Environment reports that building operations are responsible for about 17% of the country's carbon emissions with construction and materials accounting for another 11%. Canadian buildings alone account for about 50% of natural resources consumption, 33% of energy consumption, 12% of non-industrial water use, and 25% of all waste generated in this country. So those numbers are scary enough as they are, but then if you also look at the fact that by current estimates, the world's building stock is set to double by 2050, then it becomes fairly obvious that a global transformation to an energy efficient and low carbon buildings and construction sector is absolutely essential if we actually want to realize the global ambitions to limit the rise in average global temperatures to the less than two degrees above pre-industrial levels that we're currently aiming for for 2030 or to become net zero efficient by 2050. So that explains why we've seen the development and implementation of new policies and laws at various levels of government in Canada designed to help address those problems. Incidentally, Marcus, that's actually what I wanted to talk about next. A lot of people may not know that the federal government has adopted a sustainable development strategy which sets out the government of Canada's sustainable development priorities, establishes goals and targets, and identifies actions in order to achieve them. The strategy ostensibly supports Canada's international commitments, the one you were just referring to, like the United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. As another example, the Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat is leading the Green Government Initiative, which commits the government of Canada to reduce emissions from its buildings and fleets by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030 at the latest. As part of that commitment, the government's implementing green building principles and ensuring the sustainability and resiliency of its real property portfolio. With respect to all new construction and major retrofits, federal departments will have to comply with these guidelines, emphasizing low carbon emissions. Then there are initiatives like the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change. That was developed with the provinces and territories and in consultation with Indigenous people to meet Canada's emission reduction targets, grow the economy and build resilience to a changing climate committed to a net zero energy ready model building code by 2030. Unfortunately, the Fed's efforts haven't really rubbed off all that much on its provincial counterparts. There just isn't much going on at the provincial level that specifically addresses green building. Manitoba had a green building regulation in place, which was enacted under the Climate Change Emissions Reductions Act, but that regulation died with the repeal of its enabling statute in November 2018. Ontario's Green Energy Act, which made clean and renewable energy a priority for the government through, among other things, conservation methods targeted towards all buildings, was repealed in 2018. Interestingly, most green building initiatives in Canada happen at the municipal level through bylaws, policies, or official plans. Here's an example. In 2009, Toronto was the first city in North America to adopt a bylaw to require the construction of green roofs, which literally is exactly what it sounds like. Vegetation growing on top of buildings, which is designed, constructed, and maintained in accordance with the Toronto Green Roof Construction Standard. Under the bylaw, green roofs are required on new commercial, institutional, and residential developments with a minimum gross floor area of 2,000 meters squared. 
new additions to commercial, institutional, and residential development where the new gross floor area added is greater than 2,000 meters and industrial buildings with that size gross floor area or larger. As for policies, the city of Ottawa, for example, adopted a green building policy for the construction of corporate buildings as early as 2005. Since then, all newly constructed municipal buildings with a footprint greater than 500 square meters must be designed, delivered, and certified by the Canada Green Building Council as being LEED Canada certified at a minimum. Many municipalities actually incorporate their sustainable building policies right into their official plans. An example is Pickering, Ontario, whose plan requires council to promote and encourage the use of recognized and accredited third-party certification for all new development and mandates a minimum of LEED silver for all new municipal buildings. All that, of course, leads to the question of what is LEED? Maybe you can talk to us a bit, Marcus, about LEED and other systems that rate sustainability. What are they? How do they work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. There are all kinds of international systems rating the sustainability of buildings and projects. You've mentioned LEED. We've mentioned LEED a couple of times by now. LEED is short for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It's very prominent in North America. They've certified about 70,000 buildings as of 2020. Internationally, the United Kingdom's Building Research Establishment's Environmental Assessment Method, that's quite the mouthful, but they have certified about 200,000 buildings in 50 different countries since 1990. And then if you go quickly through the various continents, just to show that this really is a global initiative, you have things like in Germany, the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Nachhaltiges Bauen, or the German Association for Sustainable Building, They've certified about a thousand buildings. You have sustainable building certification in Chile. You have Green Star systems administered by the Green Building Councils in Australia, in South Africa. There's an assessment tool for green building in China. There's green new buildings rating systems used by the Indian Green Building Council and so on and so on. So this really is a global thing. But for the purposes of this talk, let's just focus on Canada and start with the lead. LEED provides for an objective standard for certifying that a building is an environmentally friendly structure. LEED is administered by the U.S. Green Building Council and its Canadian counterpart, the Canada Green Building Council. The number of LEED projects in Canada has somewhat dramatically risen over the last decade. There's a 2012 paper on green building written by one of our partners, Brendan Bowles, and he back in 2012 reported that as of October 2010, the total number of LEED certified projects in Canada had been 304, of which 217 were certified by LEED Canada rather than their U.S. counterpart. Now, as of 2020, that number has risen to more than 8,000 projects underway with 4,782 projects fully certified. So how does it work? At its most basic level, buildings are awarded points for meeting certain criteria. And the more points a building earns, the higher its LEED level of achievement. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but generally speaking, the LEED system works on the basis of eight prerequisites and 100 base points to be earned. To be certified, you need at a minimum to meet all prerequisites and earn at least 40 points. So the prerequisites are mandatory. They don't get you points. You simply have to meet them in order to even be eligible for LEED status. And those eight prerequisites are a construction activity pollution prevention, water use reduction, 
a fundamental commissioning of building energy systems, minimum energy performance, fundamental refrigerant management, storage and collection of recyclables, minimum indoor air quality performance, and finally, environmental tobacco smoke control. So those are the eight prerequisites. As I mentioned, you don't get any points for those. You just have to meet them. Now, points can be earned in a variety of other categories, such as sustainable sites, water efficiency, energy and atmosphere, materials, resources, and indoor environmental quality. In addition to those five categories, you can get points for innovation and design and for regional priority. So finally then, a lead designation depends on the aggregate point score that you collected in those categories. To be certified, you need at least 40 points. To be silver, you need 50 points, gold 60, and finally platinum, the highest rating possible, you need 80 points or more. Now, once an owner decides that it wants a project to be lead certified, the owner registers the project with the Canada Green Building Council. Once you register, that opens up online access to all kinds of information, software tools, and communication for lead users that allows the team to submit credit interpretation requests. Now, the lead system doesn't require any specific combination of points, so two buildings may both achieve the same point level for sustainable sites, for example, where one of them includes a public transportation access and a bicycle storage, and the other one protects the surrounding habitat and maximizes open space. So as long as the two buildings achieve 55 points in total, they can be certified lead silver no matter how they got to those 55 points. So even though one of them may be much more energy efficient and less expensive to operate than the other, if both of those projects, in our example, get 55 points, both of those projects will be certified LEED Silver. So that's LEED in a nutshell. Right, Marcus. But I guess one thing I'm still not clear on is who actually certifies the project? Who comes out and assesses the points, calculates and aggregates all the points, and then declares a building to have achieved any particular level? In the context of LEED, that's administered by the Canada Green Building Council, so they are the ones who actually certify. Once the owner registers the project with the council, it's the council that does the eventual certification. Right, so the owner has to make a submission to the council, which the council reviews and evaluates. Correct. Okay. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, there are all kinds of other prominent rating tools aside from LEED. Just to name a few, there's BOMA Best, there's Build Green, EnerGuide, Energy Stars, the Net Zero Labeling Project, Novo Clima in Quebec, Passive House, and so on and so on. But we're not going to talk about all of those in detail. They're all similar in what it is they do. They rate projects, they assess projects, they give projects a certain rating, and that's that's it. So I think for the purpose of this talk, it's enough if we focus on how LEED works and then just be aware that there are other rating systems out there. So now that we've talked about what green building actually is, why it's important, what the role of the construction industry is, and how the government has addressed it, maybe we can talk a bit about what we actually said was going to be the focus of this talk, the legal issues arising out of all of this. So Mike, you want to get us started on that? 
Sure, Marcus. Maybe not surprisingly, there hasn't been all that much litigation in this space in Canada. But litigation of green building issues in the U.S. has dealt with issues like failure to achieve a certain environmental rating, for example, the availability of rescission of a purchase agreement after that kind of failure, or the improper use of green building materials. There are also cases in which the validity of green building legislation has been attacked. Here in Canada, courts have looked at certain tendering issues, attacks on the validity of green building legislation, and failure to achieve certain ratings. So what advice do we have if an owner wants to build a specific rating standard? First, and probably most importantly, you better clearly state so in your tender documents. There's a case out of Alberta, Elan Construction and South Fish Creek Recreational Association, for example, in which the owner rejected a bid on the basis that the bidder lacked significant in-house lead experience, since that lack of experience might jeopardize obtaining certification, which in turn would jeopardize funding from the City of Calgary. The bidder sued on the basis that nowhere in the bid documents was there any reference to lead experience and that such experience, therefore, should not have been a factor in the evaluation. The Court of Queen's Bench agreed with the bidder and the Court of Appeal upheld that finding. So first and foremost, if an owner wants a lead rated building, the bid documents need to properly reference sustainable construction targets and stipulate relevant experience. The only Canadian case I'm aware of to date in which legislation mandating sustainable building has been addressed is Cote and Ville de Gatineau, where a bylaw for green roofs, which was in apparent contravention of the official plan and land use and development plan, was upheld. In January 2020, the city of Gatineau adopted bylaws mandating the installation of green roofs on top of buildings larger than 2,000 square meters. In addition, new multi-residential buildings have to include charging stations for electric vehicles and ensure parking areas are at least 40% greenery. The Association de la Construction du Québec challenged the bylaw before the Commission Municipale de Québec, a quasi-judicial body that oversees municipal matters, on the basis that the bylaw didn't conform with the revised land use and development plan and the official plan. But in a ruling dated in June of 2020, the Commission held that the bylaws actually were valid. If we look next out west to British Columbia, Courts there have had a chance to address the issue of a contractor failing to meet certain rating standards. In Anway Construction and Hunt, the owners alleged that the contractor had misrepresented to them that it had the relevant experience and could achieve a passive house rating for $766,000. The contract was cost plus in that case. And just for your sake, Marcus, Passive House is one of the many rating agencies, just like LEED or OMA Best or any of the others. Just like the earlier case we talked about, the RFP in this one didn't specifically address passive house criteria. The issues before the court were whether the contract was subsequently amended to add a guaranteed maximum price and whether the contractor had promised to meet passive house standards within the confines of the alleged GMP. This case, like almost every other one, came down to matters of proof. The court found that the contractor had not promised that the standard could be achieved at a certain cost. And while the court found that the contractor had represented, at least impliedly, that it had the skill and experience to complete the project apart from the passive house component, the owners had not proven that that wasn't the case. So again, the case demonstrates that before embarking on a project, stipulating any particular green building standard, the owner, the consultant, and the builder should have a clear idea of what's involved in achieving the standard, both from a financial and from a technical point of view. The tender documents and the eventual construction contract should clearly stipulate the rating as a contract requirement. If the owner wants a builder with experience in green building, 
the tender document should clearly make that experience a factor in the tender process. In an early Toronto case, actually from 2010, Toronto Standard Condominium Corp number 1898 and 743 Queen Street East, Toronto, a building was marketed as one of the city's first green condos. As it turned out, the building was not nearly as cutting edge as advertised and did not actually contain the latest environmentally friendly technology and features, both of which the marketing materials had promised. Some of the unit owners sued the developer for fraud and the architects for negligent and negligent misrepresentation. The action was actually resolved eventually by a consent judgment where the developer's principal and the architect each agreed to pay $50,000 in damages to the owners. Now, lastly, a failure to achieve a certain rating can also lead to assessment issues. In Suburban and Municipal Property Assessment Corp. Region 3 RE, property owners appealed an assessment of their condo on the basis that they'd been assured a LEED certified building when purchasing their unit, but the building never actually achieved the certification. The owners argued that they would have paid less for the property if they had known what they were actually buying, and therefore the assessment was too high. The assessment review board disagreed, finding that the sales in the same building showed that the purchase price the owners paid was in line with other sales in that building. So that's a survey of the big legal issues that have risen in Canada so far. And as we said, there's not a whole lot else out there by way of jurisprudence in Canada. So that gives us some, but certainly not a lot of guidance on what courts will do with sustainable construction projects. So until we have a body of case law, what do you think, aside from what you mentioned before, be very clear in your tender documents what it is you want, what is important for owners and for contractors who want to embark on such a project? What is important? What should parties do, legally speaking, contractually speaking? Marcus, I think you really nailed it on the head, and, and you're right. We have mentioned in passing, but for me, the clearest and simplest thing any owner can do to protect its interest is ensure that its contracts are crystal clear about what it is they want, what kind of project they want, what types of performance factors they're interested in, and what results should flow from a failure to achieve certain results. So when I say very clear, I don't just mean be very clear that you want a lead platinum building. It may be that an owner wants a lead platinum building, but if energy efficiency or waste management is important to the owner, then that's where the focus should be. Because as you mentioned earlier, Marcus, it's entirely possible to achieve certain lead standards by all kinds of different routes, depending on how you achieve your points. So unless you're specific about what it is you want, you may not wind up getting what it is you want. So for me, I, I think about focusing on those specific performance-based outcomes. And when I talk about what results should flow from a failure to achieve those outcomes, typically we think about liquidated damages to avoid all the problems associated with trying to assess damages in the context of a dispute when, for example, you don't achieve something nebulous like lead gold. As I've said, coming up with a genuine pre-estimate of damages for failing to achieve lead gold feels difficult in principle because of all the different factors that go into potentially getting you to that gold standard. So I just don't know, as we sit here today, and maybe there are engineers out there that do, how you'd ever sort of form an actual genuine pre-estimate of damages, which at least in Canada remains more or less the test for the enforceability of liquidated damages, though that's a discussion perhaps for a different podcast. But it is possible to pre-estimate damages, for example, failing to achieve a specified maximum water usage level or some level of energy efficiency for a new building. 
There are a lot of other examples of measurable and verifiable green performance requirements that could be considered and prioritized in that way. Notably, these types of performance-based metrics are more easily enforced in the design-build context as there's a single point of responsibility to the owner for both design and construction deficiencies. In a typical design-bid-build enforcing performance-based liquidated damages often proves very challenging because you've got to prove it, it was either design or construction and you're waging a battle on two fronts, which is never fun and it's a lot less efficient. So Certainly, if performance-based outcomes are important for your sustainable project, consider a design-build model. It may ultimately save you headaches in enforcement down the line. Right. And then basically, when it comes to contracting, the single most important thing is to be as specific as possible. So as you said, instead of just simply insisting in your contract that I want a project at the end that's lead gold, you say instead what specific elements you actually want to achieve that could lead to lead gold. So you say, I want energy consumption to be no more than X. I want water efficiency at a certain level. I want air quality of a certain level and so on and so on. And then you stipulate in your contract what failure to achieve any of those elements would trigger in terms of damages. And you address that by way of liquidated damages in a certain amount, if I understood you correctly. Yeah, that's right. And the only thing I note is, of course, is they're not mutually exclusive. There's no reason you can't supply the requirement that the building achieve lead gold and then also indicate specific performance requirements, like you said, related to energy consumption or water usage, those sorts of things. You can definitely do both. And in, in our view, ought to do both because there's good marketing reasons for wanting lead certification, for example. But there are also good environmental reasons for wanting to specify very specific performance based outcomes. Right. Speaking of damages, that made me think of, I just recently wrote a memo on a separate issue, but that dealt in detail with consequential damages. Do you think that damages flowing from a failure to achieve a certain rating would be consequential damages? That's a good question. I mean, when contracting for a LEED certified building or any other type of certification, it's certainly arguable that things like loss of tax benefits or government subsidies are within the reasonable contemplation of the parties at the time the contract's entered into. And so would be, in Canada at least, characterized as direct rather than consequential damages. But again, to me, that's just one more reason to be precise when you're drafting your contract. Merely contracting out of consequential damages might not achieve what it is you're hoping to achieve. If the goal is to exclude damages resulting from the failure to achieve a certain certification, our best advice is always to spell that out clearly. So to summarize this then and to wrap it up, if we were to come up with a few pieces of advice for parties engaging in sustainable projects, the first and foremost would probably, given the absence of a body of common law at this point, the crucial importance of expressly setting out the goals of the project, the risks and the liability for those risks, and finally specifically address the damages flowing from any failure to achieve the contractual goals in the contract. So I think that's probably first and foremost. Then, as we've now said a couple of times, don't simply say I won't lead gold set out exactly what it is you want, be it a cap on energy consumption, be it a certain level of water efficiency or the use of a sustainable material, whatever it is you want, be specific rather than just say, I want lead gold. And to go back to a point you raised earlier, any such goals have to be addressed and set out at the beginning. 
So design professionals need to understand the owner's requirements. Any contractor bidding on such a project needs to know what exactly it is they're bidding on. And if the owner wants a design professional and a contractor with experience in sustainable building, the request for proposal or the tender documents need to set that out expressly. Right. And the design services contract then, of course, needs to set out who's responsible for what. Design professionals have to make sure that they don't accept liability for things that they can't control. For us, the contract should address the issue of damages. That itself will be made much easier if the contract sets out what exactly is to be achieved rather than just stipulating a certain certification, as as we've said. It's easy enough to assess damages flowing from a failure to not exceed a cap on energy consumption. It's, It's done all the time, and it's far less easy to ascertain the damages flowing from achieving lead silver where lead gold was contracted for, as we saw in that case of the homeowners who bought the condo that was promised to be lead but wasn't. What's clear, though, is that given the focus on sustainable buildings at all levels of government and by private owners, learning and implementing sustainable building principles will no longer be optional. If you address these sustainable principles adequately at the outset of the project, all parties can come to a better understanding of the strategies, risks, and rewards prior to executing any design agreement. And when that's the case, when everyone's on the same page right from the beginning, the outcome will be an improved project and ideally an avoidance of disputes down the line when the project wraps up. All right, Marcus, that brings us, I think, to the end of our time here today. I'll thank you on behalf of the firm for joining me in this podcast and talking about an issue that I think we're just going to see more and more of in the coming years. Sustainable building, green building is not just the future, but is now, and it's becoming a critical element of the construction industry and lawyers and all industry participants sort of need to get on the program and understand all about these rating systems and how to deal with them in their contracts. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.